What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. And I'm so excited, y'all. We have with us this morning for the first time on Law and Disorder, the one and only host of Letters and Politics at 10 a.m., Mitch Jezrich. What's happening, Mitch? It's been a long time, Kat. I've been I've been waiting patiently for this moment oh, for the Kat Brooks yes. experience on Law and Disorder. Now, see, I was going to say what took you so long. Um, we do have, though, some serious business to talk about. The the COVID pandemic, which legit, Mitch, I was actually, as I was prepping for this segment, I was like, uh, you know, Mitch and, and Brian and, and, and I, like, we watched, right, this unfold together, right, from uh, Wuhan to when the ship docked here and then looking at the, the what was happening inside of our federal government. Um... And, and all of the stuff around benefits and how the government was or was not going to support uh, Americans as this pandemic hit and the twists and turns and it got more and more intense. And so before we get to, to when I talk about, right, the benefits that are coming to an end, I was just wondering if you could, like, walk us back a little bit to that time and the struggles that were happening between the two parties about what kind, how much, and if Americans should have received federal support to get through the pandemic in the first place. Well, it was an extraordinary time for for many things and in many ways. And it was a time in which none of us have ever lived through before. And it was a time that caused major action by government. We basically had a societal shutdown uh, at the beginning of it. And it was something that no one, even lawmakers, had never dealt with before. And certainly we've never dealt with before. And so it was trying to figure out how do we make it to the other side of this, which is basically now, because now most of these things are coming to an end. But at the moment, to me, it was always extraordinary because and and there are many things you could look at the pandemic to study afterwards and our response to it. Many debates that could be had. But to me, what always stood out, what I found most interesting was the way that the federal government stepped in to try to help people get to the other side of this pandemic. Now, you know, COVID-19 has not gone away. There are still people dying every day from it. But, you know, it does seem like we're winding down and the government's certainly winding down its response to the pandemic. It will it will end its state of the emergency on on May 11th. And but at the very beginning of it, it it was to me, it was a very important moment because I was just shocked by the things that the government was actually willing to do. And we can certainly have a conversation. Was it enough? But everything from, you know, creating the child tax credit, which expired a year ago, but was in place for a couple of years that gave parents uh, additional 250 to $300 per child, that alone on its very own reduced childhood poverty in this country by 25% which was really remarkable. Then there was the expansion of the SNAP food assistance program, which uh, is just expiring this month and will no longer be in place, in which people are getting almost an additional $100 uh, per month for food. Uh, There was the expansion of federal spending on states' Medicaid programs for here in California. That would be Medi-Cal, in which in Getting that funding, states were not 
allowed over the last three years to look to see if people are still eligible for the program because they always do these eligibility checks. And when they do these eligibility checks, there's people who always get get booted off. And we're not just talking about because somebody who was once eligible for Medicaid or Medi-Cal, now they're you know making half a million dollars a year. And so that maybe they shouldn't be eligible for it anymore. A lot of people get kicked off for very minor things and mistakes and moving and all kinds of things. Well, for the past three years, Nobody, you know, the states were actually prohibited from checking eligibility for for Medi-Cal and for Medicaid nationally. And it that states will, including California, will begin once again looking at eligibility requirements for people who are getting it starting next month. And over the next year, it's estimated that some nationally speaking, 15 million people uh, will be losing their health care. But it was pretty extraordinary. And and again, we can argue, should the government have done more? But I was shocked by kind of and surprised what the government actually did. And you think about the expansion in uh, unemployment benefits, both, both the boost in how much people were getting for those unemployment benefits, but also how long they were getting the unemployment benefits. And we saw not just with the childhood poverty rate, but we also saw the overall poverty rate dropped at a historic mark. And to me, it was indicative in an important moment to look at how government can take an active role in reducing poverty in the wealthiest nation in the country. And some of these things, and I'm not saying everything should just have been made permanent. I, you know, there, there are obvious inherent dangers of being in a permanent state of emergency. But some of these things are not actually that extraordinary if you look globally. Some of these things like child tax credit, uh, additional funds and, 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 and food assistance, a lot of these things, you know, uh, universal health care are already practiced in other countries, many who, you know, have tilt towards democratic socialism. And so I always felt this was an important moment to show how government can play an active role in, in addressing poverty and even make a difference. And now, as we're at a point where most of these things are coming to an end, not all of them, some of the tax credits for the Affordable Care Act will remain uh, until 2025. But many of these things, you know, we could talk about the, the eviction moratorium, uh, which yeah. was also important. Um, yep. Many of these things are coming to an end and it almost feels unceremoniously uh, so. And it, it just seems to me, OK, we're just going back to exactly how we were before. You could look at if you got COVID, you got free treatment. If, if you didn't have insurance, you were still covered under Medicare to get treated for uh, COVID. Uh, the tests were free. That's probably coming to an end when the national state of emergency uh, ends in May 11th. Combine that with a situation of inflation. Combine that with what, how we saw the government react to these banks that are collapsing in the last yeah. few days and juxtapose that. To me, it's, it's a bit disheartening. And, and I feel like we've missed a real opportunity to see, again, the role that government can play in reducing poverty. It's disheartening and, and it's a little terrifying when you think about what the impact on our most vulnerable people is going to be when all of those things that you just mentioned collide. I mean, let's just take the not having, you know, access to free tests or vaccines um, or treatment. You know, you you did 
nod to the fact that COVID isn't over. It's so not over that upwards of 500 people in this country still die every single day, uh, which according to the New York Times is twice the number of deaths per day during a bad flu season. Um, And that's with the testing, the vaccine um, and treatment, right, readily available. So what is going to happen um, when, when, when that's not a thing? And Mitch, my question to you is why? Do you think that Biden wants, needs to uh, signal to Americans that the pandemic is over? Because that's really what this is. I know that they know it's not over. They know that statistic that I just spit out to you. And wondering if this is perhaps um, about not letting the Republicans claim that they ended the pandemic. And is this, uh, you know, with bills that they've tried to push through uh, before what the pandemic is over bill, et cetera. Um, and is this especially important as we begin to walk into presidential election season? You know, those are all very good questions. I don't know if I'll have sufficient answers for, but I do think it's important to point out that this just these things that we just went through that the government did in in you know the, during the, the last three years, um, this wasn't just Democrats that were doing it. This was also done during the Trump presidency. It started under the Trump presidency in a Republican controlled or at least a uh, Republican controlled Senate, um, and, and then it was continued uh, and even expanded. Uh, during the Biden years and the the beginning uh, the beginning of his term, so this wasn't sort of a Republican versus Democrat uh, kind of 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 dynamic and and what we got this. And I thought that was important as well, you know, to to show it it, it doesn't have to be just a partisan left, right, or Democrat versus Republican kind of thing. Now, I, I do think you will find more Democrats who are who, would, who are more receptive and would like to actually extend some of these things uh, that are expiring. Um, I, I suppose, just thinking off the top of my head, um, you know, A, now that the House of Representatives is controlled by the Republicans, that will make it much more difficult uh, to extend many of these. Even if it was still controlled by the, uh, the the Republicans, I think you would still have some Democrats who would be uneasy about expanding, uh, expanding uh, many of these things. You, you'll remember at the beginning of this uh, congressional Congress with a new Republican leadership. They voted on, you know, some kind of wasn't really a, a, a wasn't really policy. It was more just of a statement saying America uh, will never be a socialist or a, a communist country. You know, there's some Democrats who voted for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Republicans were not alone uh, in, 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 in voting uh, for that. And so, you know, even if Republicans are still in control and if you think about how the Senate works and how easy it is to block something in the Senate, I, I think I think it would have been hard to get something um, uh, through Congress. I, I think the Biden administration is also uh, concerned about, you know, and the, the, the economy in general, inflation. Um, there are, you know, inf- inflation is caused by many different things. But you can say that, you know, when you insert a lot of money from the federal government into the economy, that can also play uh, its role. Not the only role, not not the only thing that does it, but it played its own role um, in, in inflation as well. I, I think it is fair to include that among a broader array of things that causes inflation uh, to incur, to occur. And then, you know, finally, I think that there's just this mindset that, and, and it was, the, when these things were enacted, it was during an extraordinary time, and so these are seen as extraordinary 
measures. And I think now, as, as again, we wind down from our sort of COVID-19 stand uh, and policies around it, I think there's this expectation and this thought and it's just this assumption that, oh, we're going to go back to where we were before, which I think was regrettable because I I think a lot of people believe where we were before wasn't necessarily a good place. And what I'm saying is not an argument to keep everything in place. I I would certainly like to get a $1,200 check every, you know, every year or or six months or whatever it may be, a stimulus check. But I'm not arguing for stuff like that. I'm arguing that we have shown that government can play a very active role. We have the statistics to show it in reducing poverty in this country and things never go out fairly and there's disparities. But you also saw that some of the communities that were affected most by these programs were minority com- communities, black and and, and Latino uh, communities. Um, these, these things are important. And again, to me, this was just a way of showing the active involvement, the, the involvement that government can, you know, again, the role that government can play. And trying to address some of these things. It's not insignificant. And perhaps it would have been good to kind of look at these a little bit harder. I have some other things I want to chat with you about. But but, but one more thing here. Um, I wonder if the because I, I really am starting to look at this, the, the presidential election and how that makes people sway left, right, go up or down. Um, I, I wonder, though, you know, you talk about that things got a, a little bit better for folks um, in terms of or at least they had more support right from their government uh, during the pandemic. These things are coming to an end. Things go back to the way they were or that may be worse than before. Right. Because people have to then readjust. Um and if you've got a populace, right, that is in bad financial state, I'm anticipating a bad uh, health state, right, because the, there's definitely going to be a surge in numbers. Is that good for election season? Is that where you want voters to be at when you're telling them to choose you? Yeah. It, it, no, of course not. <laughs> you, you want them to be as, you know, as good as they can be if, if you're the incumbent. Uh, that's, that, that's what you want. And, you know, Joe Biden, it's interesting, you know, we, we do see a dynamic in which, while Joe Biden's favorability numbers have risen and, you know, we can have a debate and talk about, how, you know, how, you know, what, what has his first term, how would his first, how should his first term be characterized? You still see an awful lot of people, uh, Democrats in particular, Democratic voters who still say they would prefer somebody else running for president. Now, that doesn't for on the Democratic ticket. Now, that doesn't mean Joe Biden wouldn't win the nomination. I, I suspect he kind of would. It, it, it's sort of like the uh, approvability uh, number that always comes out. Rarely is it ever over 50 percent for, for any president. So, you know, things start to happen once you're actually in the process of counting votes and, and you're in the primary uh, itself. But, you know, this is this is a tough situation um, to be in. I personally think the that uh, Joe Biden's best chance for reelection is if Donald Trump actually uh, wins the Republican nomination. I think it was because of Donald Trump that Joe Biden won in 2020. I don't feel as though people were necessarily excited about people. There was some excitement about Joe Biden, but it was more about trying, you know, getting rid of and defeating Donald Trump than it was I'm excited about Joe Biden's uh, policies and, you know, where he comes as, as from as, as a politician. And so, you know, to me, I feel Joe Biden's best hope of reelection, if he gets the nomination, is that if actually Donald Trump 
uh, wins the nomination for the Republicans because I think that will once again increase uh, turnout, uh, especially among uh, Democrats. Do you not think that the Rick DeSantis would have a similar effect? I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question. Uh, I, I think Rick DeSantis, you know, I, I think uh, DeSantis is somebody who is maybe more competent than Donald Trump, um, you know, which could be which could be dangerous. He's so a more maybe, palpable maybe, evil. But, but you know, I, I, I actually well, no, to, to your question, though, I, I actually think I, I, I don't think I think DeSantis is off putting to people like us, but I don't think he's more mm. off putting than Donald Trump. I, I think Donald Trump oh. has a special place of hatred in a lot of people's hearts that 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 um, that galvanized them uh, to go turn out to the polls and, and vote. Yeah, in my heart, they're holding hands in the exact same box of evil. But like you said, that's people like us. OK, Mitch, I want to talk about the Twitter files for folks that aren't following this. What are the Twitter files? Well, the Twitter files, this is what these these are internal documents at Twitter about internal um, discussions about when and when not to basically pull down somebody's tweet or what they call shadow ban, which means to just, you know, it's still there, but not as many people are seeing it. These kind of things, and these were files that were leaked that were leaked to a number of journalists, including Matt Taibbi, who first broke in. They were given. Matt Taibbi refuses to say exactly who gave them the files, but largely believe that these came from Elon Musk himself after after he he bought Twitter. And there's a lot in there. You know, you, there, there's definitely you know, we could definitely argue about how significant some of it is. But one of the things that I do think is significant is we do see a very active role from the FBI uh, specifically, but then other, you know, other uh, government agencies going to Twitter, not forcing Twitter to act on things, but like asking it to act on things or asking certain things to be brought down. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and I think that's a concern for some folks. And so last week, I, I think it should be a concern when you think about the history of the FBI and what, why is the FBI getting involved in telling the social media platform what they think it should have up and doesn't have it, even though it was enforcing it. There's always this, you know, sort of this pressure and coercive nature of who you're from, who you're actually talking to. And and so there was a hearing last week uh, on Capitol Hill. And in that hearing, um, Matt Taibbi and another journalist, Schellenberger, uh, here from the San Francisco Bay Area, a controversial journalist who wrote a book called San Francisco. Um, but he was one of the journalists who also received these Twitter files. They, they testified on, on Capitol Hill. And I thought it was a significant thing to actually pay attention to. Um, I'm going to be playing extended excerpts of this hearing today um, just because we, we should be thinking about these things and, 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 and hearing about them. Um, but it was also a little bit embarrassing and once again, sort of a bad mark for congressional hearings in which it was just grandstanding really on, on both sides, uh, including uh, by Democrats who, you know, called them so, you know, uh, quote unquote journalist and. Right. Really, So-called journalist. Are you paid? Yeah, I mean, that was really in the problem. I mean, Matt Taibbi, yeah, like, you know, course. look, Matt Taibbi has a lot of enemies, including on the left, but it would be absolutely wrong 
wrong to say he's not a journalist. Yeah. 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 I I agree. I mean the one the one thing I will will say um and then I will uh let you go Mitch Jezerich, but this this isn't a uh, to your point this isn't a new thing and I can't remember you might remember but I, when I, my early days uh at KPFA one of the gifts we used to give uh in Fundrive um was this documentary and in it that had you know what's his name from the Young Turks talking about when he was at MSN and the higher ups came to him and said yo the feds want you to tone it down a little bit which is why he left so the federal government meddling in what mainstream media um, and, and therefore, right, and we, I think we can call big platforms like Twitter, right, people utilize them as a media source, as a news source. The government meddling in these things is, is nothing new. Nothing new. And, but this hearing got very little attention. And mm-hmm. we were in Fun Drive, so we, I didn't air it uh, when it occurred. And, and in retrospect, I regret that actually a little bit because I felt like it mm. should be here. And you can have different opinions about, you know, about this issue. But I feel as though it should be, should be heard. So, like I said, I, I am putting together something in which we're going to be airing long excerpts of that hearing today at 10. Yeah, and be clear, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pay attention to it. I'm saying that the, the shock and awe of some folks that the government's meddling in the news that we absorb – um, is a little shocking to me. Does that make sense? It does. There, there is a very long history to it. Um, you know, we had a co- we, we we had the church committee hearings in the 1970s that unveiled everything that the FBI did, and after that occurred, really with the civil rights movement and then the anti-war, anti-Vietnam War movement, there was this shift with, especially among Democrats, of being distrustful towards the FBI, where historically, Democrats have actually been very supportive of the FBI. The largest expansion for the FBI has actually occurred under two Democratic presidents, FDR and Lyndon Johnson. The FBI was seen as, again, part of the state of which the state, you know, the government can do things. You know, there were were professionals. They called the FBI G-men, which meant government men, and was historically supported by Democrats until you got to the civil rights movement and the the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, and then everything came out about what the FBI was doing, and that created this long-standing position of the left being much more critical of the FBI that has existed for the last 50 years, but that kind of shifted after the election of Donald Trump. So the whole thing to me is complicated, and but also really interesting. And you all can listen to Mitch break it all down on his show, Letters and Politics, which airs weekdays from 10 to 11 a.m. on these airwaves. He has been a producer and host for Pacifica for decades. Um, Mitch, thanks so much for coming on Law and Disorder. I hope you come back. It was a pleasure, Kat. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.